0: This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Summer almost upon us and longer, brighter days, at least for us here in Australia. But today on Tuesday Home Time, we continue to expose what's happening in Gaza and the West Bank. I'm Jan Bartlett and this is Tuesday Home Time until 6pm. Michael Sheik is a tireless advocate for Palestine and we'll be hearing from him once again today. Also, Paul Hayward-Smith with Australian Friends for Palestine in Adelaide. Clementine Ford speaking at a recent rally in Melbourne. Then on to the Merchants of Death's War Crimes People's Tribunal, now underway. I'll be speaking with one of the organisers, Brad Wolfe, Do we want genetic engineering bananas, asked Bob Phelps from the Genetics Network, and human rights and the lack of them in the Philippines. And a conference held in Bangkok of activists looking at the issue in the Philippines and the reason they are in Bangkok, because some of them are blacklisted from the Philippines. But let's first hear from Mr. Kevin Healy and how his week has been.
1: A week went twice in a week, irresponsible, no respect for their eldest school students took to the streets in defiance of mature adults like socialist and caring business class politicians who warned them against thinking climate change, if there is such a thing, posed a threat to their very existence and against denouncing the existence, if it can be called existence, suffered by Palestinian children. Death, injury, orphaned, homeless, constant fear of bombs and guns. no health care, no education, no basic amenities, no food or potable water. That huge protest and march described by the Zionist lobby as a hate fest, leaving us to ponder which bit of opposing the dreadful suffering of children is hate, the very perpetrators of the suffering deeming it hate to oppose their slaughter and destruction. On which, and not as satire, the obvious hypocrisy of the Zion lobby, removing support for and boycotting any person or organisation who stroke which is in any way critical of the slaughter, but accusing those who call for a boycott of businesses associated with Zion, anti-Semitic. And in five days or less, Zion plans to continue the genocide. Shame to those who denounced the student protests and congratulations to those thousands of young activists. Now the week that was, a week when people are often critical of True Blue, richest person, but Gina Wronghart is all heart, caring only for the common good, exemplified this week in her call for government to stop preventing investment in what she calls the backbone of society, the resources and agribusiness sectors. And it's but a coincidence that Gina just happens to have huge financial interests in both. It's simply her concern for the less well-off, which in her case is everybody else. Mining corporations and their workers should spend time every day lobbying government to remove impediments to investment and therefore to prosperity for all of us. Like environmental controls and the need to consult annoying non-entities like Nullius non-land non-people. Gina's iron ore mine proposed for McPhee Creek a classic example. Delayed by Western Troubler was the Environment Protection Authority green tape, such as demanding an exclusion zone around a bat cave, which must be reduced. Indeed, Gina is appealing against the crippling environmental conditions placed on the project. "'The delays in assessing the McPhee project by overreaching and onerous conditions "'has delayed our investment, preventing the creation of jobs and economic activity.' "'Gina was so upset, selfless because her concerns solely those who do not have those jobs, "'never thinking of herself. Uh, uh, "'But, Gina, you could proceed immediately if you accept the EPA conditions.' And those conditions have forced us to appeal. It has bureaucracy gone mad with no concept of how great businesses like Gina Inc. operate and what environmental conditions would conform with how you operate. Uh, well, carte blanche... The altruism of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich to make life better for peoples across the globe was proven by an Oxfam report this week that the filthiest rich 1% is responsible for the same amount of carbon emissions as the poorest of the poor two-thirds of the global population, or 5.11 billion people. How lucky, lucky, lucky those 5.11 billion poorest of the poor that the 1% of the world's filthy richest so care for them. But it's not just Jeta upset at the bureaucratic barriers placed before the resource giants' altruistic crusade to eradicate world poverty, uh, which some cynics, and we certainly wouldn't agree, some cynics might say at their rate of emissions will succeed by eradicating the world altogether with Santosas, the prophet supremo kevin gag all of you declaring righteously the shrill voices of climate activists and politicians in affluent electorates representing the wealthiest true blue is costing the country jobs and reducing the living standards of average true blue by blocking new gas projects in this case, upset that selfish, selfish Tiwi Islanders have won a court injunction on poor Santosas running a gas pipeline through their traditional waters from its Barossa project north of Trublawazi, pending a uh, full hearing. Uh, no amount of climate litigation will make the energy transition faster or stop the oil and gas projects needed to meet the world's energy demands. But if it continues, it will cost Trublowazi jobs, it will drive up energy prices, and it will damage our economy, he told the Western Troubluwazi Energy Club, and surprise, surprise, they all agreed. See, like Gina, his sole concern is jobs and we know how much they go out of their way to make energy prices as low as possible. Further, Kevin complained the Tiwi case is being funded by the Environment Defender's Office, presumably giving them an advantage over poor Santosas, an outrageous abuse of and use of the public purse, wasted public money that could be used to provide subsidies and corporate welfare for the great resource behemoths, contributing to the emissions they know are essential for the transition from emissions.' With industry spokesperson Samantha McClock the Greenies providing the obvious sensible solution. Ban them. The government must step in and end the lawfare. Samantha ordered the government. Lawfare. Abuse of the legal process by greenies, activists, terra nullius, non-land, non-people, the Environment Defender's Office, made worse by the little fact that, time and again, the law they abuse rules in their favour. Samantha and Kevin and Gina know democracy and respect for the proper legal processes demands They be banned from access to the law. It's just common sense. Also expressing common sense, the big Trubla Aussie of which we're all so proud, BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, warning us, the Trubla Aussie's position as the world's premier mining destination, news in itself, is threatened by all by the all Bingusy government's looming industrial relations overhaul and sharp increases in state government mining royalties poor, bloody, youth selfish, selfish governments, and the threat that it may have to pay its workers the same pay for the same job, when it established its own labour hire subsidiary to avoid that threat to prosperity. Clearly, in the national interest, as Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Michelle Bulldust also told a caring business class get-together this week, the sole cause of inflation was wages, and wage rises meant rates would have to keep rising to control inflation. Uh, but, Michelle, I displayed my naivety, uh, aren't the huge increases in prices by the corporate sector the reason why it's called inflation? That is so naive. That so misses the point. Uh, but, but wages are simply the price of labour. As prices soar, uh, shouldn't the price of labour increase? And, and wage rises are still not keeping up with the cost of living anyway. That is so naive that so misses the point every economist who understands the delicate flower that is the economy knows wages are the sole cause of inflation. We must rein in the greed of workers. There, my naivety exposed by the expert. That contributor to the economy extolled by Gina and Kevin and bloody huge profits is highlighted by great international fossil Shev wronged by the tax man, who revealed that in 2021, on revenue of $9.2 billion, this great corporate citizen paid a massive tax impost of exactly $30 on $9.2 billion and it complained, this this is true, that it should have paid nothing. Naturally, like all of them, it meets its legal tax obligations. Mentioned last week, our Minister Michelle rolling along with them was given a lavish birthday lunch by the gambling industry. Well, no connection, but this week Michelle announced she was unlikely to adopt a call to ban gambling advertising. And we're sure the cost of all that advertising helps them meet their legal tax obligations. The spit-the-dummy loyalty of the week award to Caring Business Class Party MP Russell broad Bridges, who resigned from the Caring Business Class Party on a matter of profound principle. He got knocked off at pre-selection for the seat he's held on and off for more than 30 years. Not just knocked off, 161 votes to 16, showing his broad, burnt support. So it's their own fault. If they'd supported him, he wouldn't have had a quit to sit on the cross benches, well named in the circumstances, until the next election, after which he'll be sadly missed by all of us who appreciate the parliamentary democratic system. The euphemism of the week award was a walk-up start. Well, a blow-up start. After Elon makes fortune, Starship Rocket blew up yet again, and yet again Elon's team called it a huge success, presumably because it managed to get off the ground before it blew up. Sure, sure, it's a huge success if the idea is for it to blow up, but uh, I rather think that isn't the plan, and all these huge explosions must be encouraging potential passengers whom Elon hopes to attract. But no, calling the disaster a success was not the euphemism of the week. That came from an Elon employee who excitedly lauded the success, then said there was a rapid unscheduled disassembly. A. Rapid, unscheduled disassembly. The bloody thing blew to smithereens. Elon team, your euphemism of the week award is on its way. Finally, not a particularly amusing ending, but this international incident over sonar discombobulating a couple of troublous Aussie train killers told it can cause confusion... Good heavens, confused train killers, confusion, disorientation, internal organ damage, a litany of illnesses. But presuming True Blue Aussie and the U.S. hub and the train killer merchandise marauding the oceans all use sonar, why hasn't someone asked, what the hell is it doing to the marine life which can't clamber back on board and get out of the way? Oh, of course, they, they don't matter.
0: Tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability Broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're talking about what health, well-being and body sovereignty mean for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands, with programming by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR and broader community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2023. While the world's attention is on the genocide occurring in Gaza, the Zionists are on the rampage in the West Bank, both the illegal settlers and the IDF. I'm speaking with Michael Sheik from Free Palestine, Melbourne.
2: I just want to give you some context about what's happening in both Gaza and the West Bank by going back to an interview that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did in 1989, in which he said, I quote, Israel should have exploited the repression of the demonstrations in China when the world was focused on that country to carry out mass expulsions among the Arabs of the territories. He was, of course, referring to the Tiananmen Square massacre. And what he was saying was that while the world was looking elsewhere, Israel should have stepped up its ethnic cleansing campaign throughout the occupied territories. And that's exactly what it's been doing. While the world has been focusing on the humanitarian catastrophe in the Gaza Strip and the mass ethnic cleansing going on there, settlers and soldiers in the South Hebron Hills have been successfully depopulating Palestinian villages in the West Bank. At times it just comes down to soldiers and settlers coming to a Palestinian town saying, leave by tomorrow morning or we're going to come in and kill you. Other times, um, now that it's the olive harvest, it involves attacks on farmers so that they can't get their olives. That's part of an ongoing campaign that's been happening for decades. But entire communities have been depopulated in the last six weeks. And many, many more are just on the brink holding on, mainly due to um, support of Israeli and international activists who reduce the amount of actual violence that the soldiers and settlers can inflict upon Palestinians when they're physically present. But it looks like a very successful ethnic cleansing campaign while the world is still talking about whether a command and control center was under Al-Shifa Hospital Quietly, quietly, pogroms and forced deportations are happening in the West Bank now.
0: And where are those people forced to go?
2: They are forced to move in with relatives in the already desperately overcrowded refugee camps throughout Palestine. That's the thing about ethnic cleansing in Palestine. We all know, or most of us know, about the ethnic cleansing campaign that happened in 1947 and 48 to create the State of Israel, known as Nakba or the catastrophe to the Palestinians. But that process never stopped. Israel has always been taking over Palestinian land and pushing its people out, so that every generation, a new generation, is added, uh, of refugees, is added to the original Palestinian refugee population, as the territory of Palestine becomes smaller and the territory of Israel becomes larger. That's what colonialism is.
0: What about the number of young Palestinians, I would imagine they're young, who have been arrested in the West Bank since October the 7th and languishing in Israeli jails now?
2: Just to once again give you some context, um, there's 4,000 people who've been arrested within Israel mainly from the Gaza Strip, workers on the Gaza Strip who've been arrested. Many of them have been forced to return to Gaza, but 700 have disappeared and nobody knows where they are. Within the West Bank itself, there's been about 3,000 arrests. Most of these are people who are in custody today without having any charge under special administrative detention orders. Most of these arrests occur in the middle of the night, and involves the terrorization of the detainee's family, the vandalization of everything in the house, and the humiliation of the detainee in front of their family members. I've been to houses where an arrest or a raid has taken place, and they not only smash up all the furniture and stuff like that, they break the water pipes and, and the plumbing infrastructure and things like that. They steal anything that's not that, that, that they can use and destroy everything else. It also involves the taking of hostages who are relatives of people wanted by Israelis. They not only mistreat and humiliate them, but they upload the videos of their mistreatment onto TikTok so that it's publicized throughout the whole of the occupied territories um, so that the relatives will give themselves up often to secure the release of someone like their mother or their brother or their sister or, 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 or that kind of thing. So that is a level of violence that's happening throughout the West Bank while the world is looking at Gaza.
0: And the prisoners who have been there for a long time, some been there for years and years, there is stories also that they're being further mistreated in jail. There's been six
2: killings of Palestinian prisoners in the Israeli jails and a lot of other people who've been severely injured by beatings and torture, and shooting with rubber bullets um, at very close range. And uh, up from this, you know, there's desperate overcrowding because of so many new prisoners being forced cells together. There is denial of medical care. And with the onset of winter, there's a very uh, grave shortage of blankets Women prisoners in particular have been deprived of a lot of um, their basic necessities. Um, The food is often rotten, the water is foul. A lot of them are hoping that they will be released as part of this um, prisoner exchange um, that's been negotiated with Hamas in exchange for Israeli women and children. The the violence in Israeli prisons is um, quite shocking by Australian standards.
0: Is it known how many women and children are in Israeli jails and why they are there?
2: Yes, there is, but I don't have that um, at my fingertips. Look, a lot of journalists have been imprisoned and a lot of um, politicians and political activists have been imprisoned. A lot of um, Palestinians within Israel itself and also the West Bank are arrested for things like um, Facebook posts or even liking a Facebook post that is critical of the Israeli government or the apartheid regime in the occupied territories. So it's a case of fear, not only within the prisons, but for those outside the prisons who, who know that they're being watched all the time and that can be arrested for any kind of thought crime even, against the occupation. You know, it's illegal not only to carry out protests against the war in Gaza, and I'm talking not in the occupied territories, in Israel itself and the occupied territories, but supporting in social media sentiments that the government considers hostile towards a war can get you in jail for six months without a formal trial and without being charged. They're trying to um, break the pal- spirit of the Palestinians by making them understand that anything, everything they do is being watched and anything they do can lead to their arrest and indefinite imprisonment.
0: Well, they've been trying for 75 years and they haven't managed to break that rule yet and I'm quite sure they won't in the near future.
2: I hope so. I hope so. I mean, um, the, the spirit of the Palestinians to keep on... Resisting, despite the odds, has been one of the wonders of the world. It's why they continue to inspire so many oppressed peoples around the world. But Israel also thinks that it can... Well, you know, the logic of power is uh, a moderate of violence doesn't work, and the solution is more violence and more violence until you get the insanity that we're seeing in the Gaza Strip today. Israel is becoming more and more fascistic, not only towards Palestinians, but towards dissident Jews. Yeah, you're right. The Palestinians haven't been broken yet, but the Israelis are confident that they will be broken someday and the future will tell.
0: And I'm sure Palestinians in both Gaza and the West Bank are well aware of the worldwide support from the people of the world for them.
2: Yeah, I've heard, you know, interviews of doctors in the Gaza Strip and and things like that. And you'd think they'll have better things to worry about than what's happening in Melbourne and London and places like that. But they say how encouraged they are that, you know, ordinary people and Jewish people are standing up and sitting in the offices of politicians and speaking out and calling for boycotts against Israel. Because the thing about the occupation is it makes the Palestinians feel like they're all alone in the world and nobody cares about them in their little dungeons and concentration camps and things like that. And when you see Penny Wong and Albo and uh, Joe Biden and the rest smirking as they cuddle up to Netanyahu and the Israeli lobby, they feel like the whole world's against them. But when they see that ordinary people overwhelmingly support the Palestinian cause and come out again and again to denounce Israel and declare the solidarity of Palestinians, it actually means a hell of a lot to the people on the ground there to know that they're not alone and that we too oppose what our governments are doing.
0: And it's good also, Michael, that the demonstrations have moved beyond the rallies. I'm not saying people shouldn't go to the rallies, they should be going in increased numbers but also other groups are targeting, like you said, a politicians, front door, the docks, different, different places to make more people aware of what is being done in our name. It's absolutely amazing. I've been doing this for a long time.
2: I always hoped this day would come where school students, health workers, feminists like Clementine Ford, queer rights activists would all kind of like realise that the Palestinian struggle is their struggle to stand up, organise, picket politicians' offices. But yeah, it's um exactly what we always hoped would happen. So that is really great. Obviously people aren't getting their news from um the mainstream media, but they um are appalled not only what's happening in Palestine, but what our government's doing to support it. And they want to be on the right side of history. So it's very encouraging. Like you say, not only that tens of thousands of people are coming out to our rallies week after week, but they're organising themselves and walking out of their classrooms and calling for the boycott of Israeli products and blocking Zim ships from docking at Botany Bay. That is just um, extremely encouraging news.
0: And BDS is alive and well? BDS is alive and well,
2: Um, I spoke on your show a couple of weeks ago, I believe, about the very successful campaign against RMIT and its ties with the Israeli arms company, Elbit. Unions are getting more active. Actually, they've they've had um, BDS resolutions on their books for several years now, but they haven't acted on them. But now the push is coming from the grassroots to be more assertive in the BDS campaign even after the bomb stopped falling on Gaza, this will might be a turning point in Palestinian solidarity around the world as more and more unions decide that they're going to join and actively participate in the boycott campaign against Israel.
0: Final words, Michael?
2: We, we've got to do what we can do. Uh, Norman Finkelstein recently, um, who's an expert on Palestine, and not someone to kind of like, um, he's been writing about for decades, long before it became fashionable, even among left-wing academics, to write about Palestine, and not someone to get carried away by his emotions. He described what is happening in Gaza today as a genocide. Now, the world has seen other genocides and where it failed to act. I think people understand that... When the governments fail, it's up to the people to stand up for what is right. Let's do what we can where we can to stand up in solidarity for the Palestinians who are fighting at the very centre of the global struggle against the far right, the ethno-nationalist right and racism in the 21st century.
0: Thank you, Michael.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: And many thanks to Michael Sheik and Free Palestine Melbourne for the wonderful work they are doing. Look them up. Join.
3: What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments
4: like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved.
3: Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop.
4: You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active.
3: APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. On the 11th of November,
1: the Australian
0: 2023 Edward Said Memorial Lecture was delivered on stage in Adelaide. This is a yearly event organised by the Australian Friends of Palestine Association. The speaker was highly respected human rights lawyer, academic, researcher and author, Francesca Albanese. Her current role is the UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. Before that, She was 20 years as a highly respected human rights expert for the United Nations. I spoke with Paul Hayward smith recently retired UC, who was the initial chair of AFOPA, which was registered in 2014. We've heard a lot about Francesca in the last couple of weeks, Paul, but take us back a while. When was the decision made to invite her to Australia to deliver this year's Edward Said Memorial Lecture.
5: She had given the Anne Edward Said Memorial Lecture in London, London has an ESML as well. See, I'm not on the executive of uh, AFOPA, but AFOPA decided to invite her to present the Edward Said Memorial Lecture in Adelaide, and um, she accepted. Now... There's nothing wrong about that. She's not quite entitled to do that as she was in London. Her role does not prevent her from making public addresses and um, and that's what she did.
0: And then she travelled round probably the eastern coast or the eastern parts of Australia and she gave interviews. She talked at the National Press Club. She was in demand, wasn't she?
5: Oh, very much so. I mean, she was on Q&A on the Monday night. You remember that with... Um, Mark Liebler from, the, from representing the Jewish community, and uh, Dave Sharma, similarly representing Jewish interests. There was a government, a deputy of Penny Wong, who spoke for the government, uh, and then there was Francesca with Nasa Mashney, who is the president of APAN, the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. So there's five, and it was a balanced group. Harking amongst themselves, I suppose But nothing improper about that and Then the National Press Club well, you, I presume you saw that It was uh, a very um, positive event Helpful And as you say, she has uh, She's spoken to uh, She's accepted invitations From a number of parliamentary friends of Palestine That is, you know, members of parliament State parliaments Who have um, groups within their, of their members Who are supportive of Palestine, and she did that in Adelaide. And I think she did it in Sydney, might have been Brisbane as well. But anyway, she she did accepted invitations from a number of those. There's nothing inappropriate about that.
0: And a highly qualified UN lawyer, isn't she? Yeah,
5: of course. the 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 Jewish lobby is attacking her and saying, "Well, you know, she's she's not fulfilling her role as a UN special rapporteur because she's taken sides." Uh, that sort of begs the question i mean her role is to investigate and make it make a determination and assert it and and she has made investigations she's decided that israel is an apartheid state and she is obliged to tell the truth uh, she sees it that's her role that doesn't make her a supporter of hamas or anything like that she's just doing her job and, uh, unfortunately the um, Israeli lobby is not prepared to accept that.
0: The statement that was circulated by the Australian, Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, what did it say?
5: I had seen, I haven't got it in front of me or here, but I think I have seen it. I think it makes allegations such as that she's supported terrorism and that she is an anti-Semite, which is an outrageous suggestion. And that is outrageous. I mean, just because somebody says something which is anti-Israel, which is against what Israel is seeking to promote, that doesn't make somebody an anti-Semite at all. That's what people have to understand, that the, the Israeli lobby is using this allegation of anti-Semitism as a defense mechanism quite inappropriately accused her of, um, well, I think supporting terrorism and the you know, supporting uh, Hamas. I mean, that's just not at all what she said in any of her speeches. The ESML speech or the National Press Club, she she didn't say that at all. She she made certain comments about questioning what the right to, to self defence of Israel means, drawing attention to the constraints upon such a right uh, in the circumstances of. That apply here in respect of Gaza, because Gaza is effectively under the uh, occupation of Israel uh, and is not a, a, a separate country. So it's not so uh, in international law, Israel cannot go to war with it, uh, and it has restraints in international law as to just what they, how far they can go. They can't go overboard in the sense of um, collective punishment. Which is which is what they've done, or or, or going overboard with uh, with uh, their conduct. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous. I mean, you've seen the pictures, and you, you if you like me, you, you're distressed at the, even the contemplating of some child, four-year-old child, something beneath that rubble who might not have been killed and is just lying there waiting to die. I mean, it's just appalling that they have a right because they might think that there might be one Hamas official in a cellar underneath to bomb a hospital knowing that it would have the likelihood of killing dozens and dozens of people. That is just outrageous. Uh, And there's genocide. The use of the word genocide is quite appropriate. Indeed, there is in the United States a substantial group of lawyers uh, known as the Centre for Constitutional Rights, which has called it Genocide and has called out their own government as being an accomplice to genocide. We're going through difficult times, Jan. The more that people in Australia understand and learn about it, the better.
0: And what I keep on trying to say to people, anti-Semitism, the Palestinians are Semite. Nobody picks up on that. Can you explain?
5: Jewish people lived around the Mediterranean, particularly Alexandria, uh, with Muslim people and Christian people for centuries in harmony. And the Jewish people who lived in those areas and in the, in the Holy Lands were, were called Sephardic Jews. They are to be compared to the Ashkenazi Jews who were the Jews who came from Europe, principally Eastern Europe. This was a result, I'm testing my memory a bit now, but at a particular time, or, you know, a thousand years ago, in Turkey or nearby, the Jewish religion was adopted by the local people. Now, these were people who then ultimately went into Eastern Europe, Poland, Austria, Germany, Ukraine, and so on, and ultimately into into Europe proper, and who were the Jews that uh, Hitler attacked during the Second World War, and who became refugees. And these were the Ash- Ashkenazi Jews. And of course, the history shows that the Jewish leaders who had become Zionists, who wanted to establish a home for these poor people, uh, refugees in, in the Holy Land, encouraged countries like the United States and Australia not to accept so that they would be obliged to go to the Holy Land. And so the Ashkenazi Jews are to be com- compared against the Sephardic Jews who lived in harmony with Islamic and Christian people, Arab people, uh, for centuries. Is that Ashkenazi occupier... Uh, colonial enterprise that has given rise to gave rise to the 1948 war and the um, creation of the state of Israel and 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 since then has seen the progressive attempts by Israel to remove Palestinians to ethnically cleanse them and there's no suggestion that that's happened and happening and we see it fully today where in the west bank uh, settlers are killing palestinians removing them from their homes and their farms uh, demolishing their houses Uh, and it's happening whilst we speak particularly from area c in the north of the west bank uh, they are seeking to remove cleanse the land of palestinians and so far as gaza is concerned we can see what we can see there their plan. They tell the people in the north that they've got to move south, that to be safe, they move south. There's no way that Israel intends to allow those Palestinians who have gone south from the north for immediate safety to return to the north. And now that they're in the south, they're now starting to bomb the south, and they're telling the people to go to the Rafah crossing. They're negotiating with Egypt to try and get Egypt to allow them to come into Egypt, and they're the negotiation includes substantial economic benefit to Egypt. In other words, they're, they're paying them to take them to get rid of them totally. And there can be no doubt that Israel will has an intention to reoccupy Gaza. It says it doesn't, but that's just rubbish. And for it to be a part of the uh, the land of of Israel, uh, as they intend and hope, that, um All of the West Bank will be an event, of course, because the current Israeli government has got this religious backing. And, of course, they point to the fact that God said to Moses or whoever it was that God gave to the Jewish people all of the land from the Great River to the Euphrates. That means all of the land from the Nile. So there's a substantial portion of Egypt that they say is theirs. All of the Sinai, all of Jordan all of Syria. The Euphrates, of course, is in Iraq. So if these people are allowed to continue, children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren will will have a a world that has this constant war going on and it has to end, it has to stop. And the only place that we can really look to if we don't want, not contemplating a a much greater war that might include Lebanon and Jordan and Syria we can look to as the United Nations. Now, the United Nations has got its problems in the sense that the way it's set up, the Security Council is the body that has the primary capacity to take punitive action against member states or other states. And of course, in the in the UN, uh, the, the, Israel has the total backing of the United States, and the United States has used its veto in the Security Council for. 40-odd times to to prevent resolutions against Israel over the years. Unfortunately, we can't really look to the Security Council. Now, there is, fortunately, an alternative, and that is what's called uh, Resolution 377, which is the Uniting for Peace Resolution. This was a resolution which was adopted in, I think, 1950, when the problem that the... uh, United States had was that it was seeking Security Council resolutions in respect of its war in Korea or the Korean War and Russia was using its veto to stop resolutions and so Resolution 377 was adopted which provided that where in any cases where the Security Council was unable to uh, take action to maintain um, international peace and security the General Assembly could consider the matter immediately and they issue appropriate recommendations to other un members for collective measures including the use of armed force so there is this resolution 377 alternative of the general assembly acting and i believe i believe that what should be happening is that the general assembly should be relying upon this Resolution 377, and, and saying to all of its member states, you must do the following, you must, if you haven't already, and mind you, the vast majority will have already recognized Palestine, but all member states should recognize Palestine, which is simply putting giving effect to Security Council Resolution 242 anyway, which has just been ignored by Israel and the US, and do so on the 67, 1967 borders, which is what the re- re- resolution 1964-2 called for. The 67 borders being, of course, the borders, the Green Line, which um, is the current West Bank, what's seen as the West Bank and Gaza. So there's nothing particularly contentious about it, except for the fact that, of course, since 1967, the, Israel has sent in settlers, and there's some now 700,000 Jewish people, citizens of Israel, living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which is which is inside Palestine's area under the 67 borders. But anyway, coming back to this resolution 377, that I think should occur is that to call upon all its member states to recognise Palestinian Palestine on those borders, uncontentious borders, and call upon its if if Israel doesn't comply, if Israel doesn't end its occupation uh, and arrange for those Jewish settlers who are there to come back to Israel then those member states should take punitive action against Israel, and they can do that by excluding all diplomatic activity with Israel and all economic activity with Israel now. If that were to happen, then I believe that pretty quickly Israel would toe the line because suddenly Ought to happen. None of this business about calling upon Israel to negotiate with the Palestinians because the Israelis will not negotiate. They might say they will and they will, but they'll never, they'll never agree to anything. And they won't agree to anything because God gave them the land and they cannot give up anything that God gave to them. That's their reasoning.
0: If these countries in the UN have enacted now after six weeks of carnage massacres of the palestinian people what's going to put a bomb under them to make them act
5: i mean i don't know i mean i and what really distresses me is our government our labour government has had it as part of its policies over recent years it's it's um, when it's had its um, its conventions adopted resolutions that an incoming labour government would recognise the state of palestine continues to refuse to do so. Uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong says, we believe there should be a two-state solution. That's exactly what I'm saying, proposing. And I can't see how uh, Penny Wong could say it should be borders other than the 67 borders. I mean, and the 67 borders still give Israel something like 70% of the land of Palestine before 1948, leaving only some 28 to 30% or something like that in the West Bank and Gaza. So it's not as if those borders are unfavourable, I would suggest, to Israel. So why our government professes to say we support a two-state solution, why our government can't recognise Palestine, move a motion in the General Assembly that I've suggested is beyond me. And And if it did, Australia's... Standing in the world, in my view, would rock it. Now, standing with the United States and the UK and Canada might not, but Australia would be doing, I think, something outstanding and remarkable. And being the country that it is, that is a Western country in the Anglo-Saxon world, other states that are sort of, you know, not doing much uh, would sit up and say, hell, look what Australia's done. We've got to get behind this. This can bring an end to this Middle East conflict. So Australia has the, and I believe, has the is in the position where it can actually do something substantial.
0: Have you in the past spoken to any ALP people in Adelaide and told them what your position is on this? Oh, yes.
5: I have no doubt that at the moment a lot of unhappiness in the Labor Party, including members of Parliament, about what the government is doing. There's a lot of dissension. There are many fine members, I'm the ones that I know are in Adelaide, uh, South Australia, of course, Um, they're the ones that I see, who take a similar view to the view that I've expressed. So it's also what Penny Wong has expressed. Penny Wong has come out and said, we believe that that there has to be an end to this, and it has to be by two states, and, and if she says that, how big a deal is it to go on to, to, go, to go ahead and say, and it should be on the 67 borders? Because that's what the Security Council Resolution 242 calls for. And, and what other borders should there be? And it's no good saying, oh, well, yeah, but in the meantime, you know, Israeli settlers have gone into this part. They went in there knowing that it was contentious, knowing that what they were doing was viewed by the vast majority of the countries in the world as illegal. So they can't say they went in there with their eyes shut so if they have to leave they have to leave as they left gaza in 2006 or 7 or something they came out of gaza they then went into the a lot of them went into the west bank but we see it now you hear about them and i hear about it i hear about and what must be of real concern to the alp and many alp people is that they're losing this the support of the people i mean i know many people who voted ALP all their lives, as I'd had until a couple of years ago, or a few years ago, who are now saying, well, I, how can I vote for the ALP anymore? Obviously, they can't vote for the Liberal the Conservatives, but they can vote for the Greens, because they, and they know that if the Greens were to get into a position of power in some way, as, as being part of a government, the Greens would insist upon Recognition of Palestine and taking the sort of steps that I've talked about, and of course there are, with, with the growth of the TEALs and other independents, independent people being elected, and provided you get the independent, there is the opportunity of voting for someone who they know, whose position on Palestine they know. Well, that's what I think people are going to be doing, and the Labour Party is going to lose a lot of votes. Um, I think that Mr Albanese and Ms Wong need to put their thinking hats on start
0: doing something. I've been speaking with retired at Lake UC, Paul Hayward-Smith, who was the initial chair of asopa Australian Friends of Palestine Association, which was registered in Adelaide in 2014. Hi, I'm Monera from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio
2: on 3CR.
0: And just one of the many Inspiring speakers at the recent rallies here in Melbourne at the State Library was Clementine Ford, feminist, writer, broadcaster and public speaker.
3: It is an honour to stand here on unceded Wurundjeri land and to see so many people come out when they're trying to silence. So many of you to, to march every week and see the voices of young resistance activists who are learning how to be people in this world who use their voice. I post a video of a child in shock, shaking on the ground of a hospital, running out of fuel and hope, and I am told, do your research. And I wonder what it is they think I'll find that will change my mind. What possible justification there is to uncover that would make, could make, should make, any one of us decide that yes, in this instance, it's okay to bomb children. But I like facts, I like information, so I take her up on the direction, and I do my research, and I'm glad I did. Because while I already knew the broad strokes of the situation, that for 75 years, since the Nakba of 1948, Israel has been oppressing Palestinian people, using the brute strength of the US-funded IOF to terrorize the population, Installing an apartheid system, forcing Palestinians from their homes and land to make way for illegal settlements And detaining Palestinians in Israeli prisons without charge I didn't know some of the finer details I didn't know about the massacre of Deir Yassin One of many Palestinian villages targeted by Zionist militias in 1948 In a process of ethnic cleansing that would clear the land and pave the way for the formation of the illegal Israeli state I didn't know that despite having signed a peace pact, Zionist militia broke it by invading Diyar Slaughtering over 100 Palestinians, children, women, men, the elderly, in the most barbaric of ways. And I didn't know that the massacre of Diyar and the fear it prompted was a key factor in more than 700,000 Palestinians being forced from their home in what we know as the Nakba. And I didn't know that until this year, 2023, the United Nations had not acknowledged this in any large-scale way. I didn't know that since 1967, when Israel illegally occupied the West Bank, the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, that it has arrested more than one million Palestinians. I didn't know that four in ten Palestinian men will be detained in Israeli prisons and two of every five have been arrested. I didn't know that there are currently over 1,200 Palestinian administrative detainees who are being held in Israeli prisons indefinitely without charge. And that Israeli law allows for that. I didn't know that since 2000, there have been more than 1,000 complaints of abuse of Palestinian prison hostages at the hands of Israeli prison officers and not a single one has been investigated. I didn't know that since 2000 more than 12,000 children have been detained by Israeli forces. I didn't know that more than 700 children living under Israeli rule in the occupied West Bank are prosecuted through the Israeli court system every year and that the most common charge is throwing stones. And the maximum penalty for that is a prison term of 20 years. It didn't surprise me, though, to learn that Palestinian children held hostage by this carceral terrorism are frequently subjected to psychological, physical and sexual abuse. And that is, as of of October this year, there are 170 children behind Israeli prison bars. I didn't know that a period of 50 days in 2014, IOF soldiers staged more than 6,000 raids into Gaza, destroying over 8,000 homes and making 11,000 families homeless. And I didn't know that these raids killed more than 1,500 people, over 500 of them children. And that zero politicians, generals or military figures have ever been held accountable. Yeah. And I didn't know until this week, until yesterday, in fact, that the average age of the victims killed by Israeli bombs is five years old. I could go on, but we don't have time. And the truth is that doing your research into the Israeli state and its brutal 75-year oppression of Palestinian people will yield a never-ending list of horrors, abuses, and incomprehensible injustices. our pathetic, gutless leaders tell us that Israel has the right to defend itself? We have all seen horrendous, relentless footage of Palestinians, many of them children, dying. Terror, fear, destruction, we have seen the brazen war crimes committed by Israel and we have seen our so-called leaders refuse to call it genocide and refuse to condemn it. We have seen the cost of human life and decide, and who decides which of those lives count. But we have also seen footage of the incredible bravery and heroism of healthcare workers who refuse to leave their posts. Even as Israel drops bombs on hospitals where children are being treated for cancer. We have seen relentlessly courageous Palestinian men pulling children out from beneath rubble, holding them, singing to them, loving them in their final moments, or when they understand them to be what we now know as the acronym WCNSS, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. We've seen mothers mourning their babies being asked to bear what no one, mother or otherwise, should ever be asked to endorse, that the murder of children can continue without remorse because a military superpower has the right to defend itself from them. And we have seen young adults barely out of adolescence donning press vests to make sure the world can see what's being done to them. Heroes in the face of depraved, soulless, evil and totalitarianism. Our governments and the mainstream media want to pretend that this collective action This global resistance movement is not happening. They have always silenced the voices of Palestinian liberation, believing that if we could not hear them, it meant they didn't exist. To those leaders, to Anthony Albanese, Penny Wong and the federal members of the Australian Labour Party government, who are determined to protect their power at all costs, we will not forget Palestine. Don't forget how much you tried to bury her. We are here to let Palestine know that we hear them. We will fight for her, and we will fight with her people. They cannot erase Palestine as long as we keep saying her name. Palestine! Free Palestine! Done.
0: Thank you, Clementine. And you've been listening to Clementine Ford, one of the many, many speakers who have been at the State Library over many weeks now to support the people of Palestine. Clementine Ford, feminist writer, broadcaster, public speaker, and much more. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most
5: devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
0: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war. Stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
5: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
0: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza.
5: Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
0: Brad Wolfe is a lawyer, former prosecutor, professor and community college dean. He is the co-founder of Peace Action Network of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, an affiliate of Peace Action and a partner of World Beyond War. Brad is a full-time activist for peace and justice and his writings have been published in The Progressive, Common Dreams, Counterpunch. Antiwar.com, Consortium News, and Dappled Things. He recently authored a book on Philip Berrigan's collective writings entitled A Ministry at Risk. Brad is also an organiser with the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal, which began in November. I spoke to Brad at his home in Pennsylvania recently and asked him about that long journey. Peace and Justice. When did it begin?
6: It's been quite a journey. I'm 60 years old now, and I started off wanting to become a lawyer because I wanted to be a prosecutor uh, in criminal justice, public service. And I thought that was uh, a good route to follow as a way to help serve the public. And Robert Kennedy had been one of my heroes, and he had been a prosecutor, so I followed that track. And I became an assistant district attorney, which in the States is a prosecutor, uh, right outside of Philadelphia here, as soon as I got out of law school and spent about four years doing that and realized that public service in the United States is more about self-service than public service. Wasn't so much criminal justice as it was political manipulations. And I was not cut out for that kind of thing. So I left and, um, Went to work at a community college as a professor, teaching courses in law and in literature. I was working with low-income and low-literacy populations, and uh, spent much of my time as a professor, and then uh, the bulk of it as an administrator, as dean of academic affairs at our community college here in Central Pennsylvania. And so, throughout that time, I was active in social justice movements, and eventually co-founded Peace Action Network of Lancaster which is an affiliate of Peace Action National. And we've been organizing and partnering with World Beyond War and engaging in various activities here, all based around nonviolent resistance and the abolition of war. And that eventually led me to Kathy Kelly and Nick Modern. And through that, I was able to work with them. we came up with this idea of having a People's Tribunal Where we would hold weapons manufacturers accountable for war crimes. Rather than go after the United States government, we wanted to go after the corporations who are making the money because we believe that profit was driving war in the United States and we wanted to hold the corporations accountable.
0: Now these tribunals are mirrored on earlier ones, is that right?
6: They are. So the Bertrand Russell Tribunal of 66 was certainly an inspiration and then the World Tribunal on Iraq of 2005. And then more recently, the uh, Tribunal on U.S. imperialism. Uh, there's been a People's Tribunal on police abuse here in the United States. So it is a, a People's Tribunal is a great way to reclaim justice when your government and the courts are not responding to illegal actions.
0: Have those previous tribunals come to any good conclusions that, maybe the authorities or somebody else is actually taken up?
6: Well, the Russell Tribunal and the others came to excellent conclusions with outstanding evidence. And so they served as educational documents to a large degree, educating the public. And they're a great resource to go to. And they then provided their recommendations to certain national and international bodies to take up legal actions. The closest we've come is that... uh, French weapons manufacturers are currently being sued by an international human rights organization for war crimes and crimes against humanity because the French are providing weapons to the Saudis in the war against the Yemenis. So we would hope that we might be able to do the same, which is take our evidence and our recommendations and provide it to international bodies, human rights organizations, who then might take this up in places where you could sue a a weapons manufacturer, a United States weapons manufacturer, that might have a facility in another country.
0: And you're targeting the four biggest in the United States?
6: Well, three of the biggest. What we wanted to do was capture the different aspects of warfare, so conventional warfare, nuclear warfare, and drone warfare, which is a particular concern of ours. So uh, with Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon, we have all aspects of conventional warfare and all aspects of nuclear warfare, since all three are heavily involved. And they are among the three largest in the world. The fourth defendant is General Atomics, and that is a privately held corporation by the Blue Brothers, And they are uh, one of the world's leading drone makers. So we wanted to bring a drone maker in as one of the four to really highlight drone warfare.
0: What's been the work to this day to bring it to this area? How long has it taken? And how many people have been involved?
6: So February will be two years since the inception. We've been working with a steering committee of people, Which includes uh, attorneys who are well versed in international law, folks like Richard Falk, Bill Quigley, Marjorie Cohen, uh, also with war veterans and war research analysts to help guide us. And then within that steering committee, we've had a working committee of just three people, which is myself, Nick Modern, and Kathy Kelly. And the three of us have done the day to day organizing and preparing. We've been very. Uh, fortunate to have college student interns and volunteers work with us to help us on the research over the past year. They've responded wonderfully. We were really happy that uh, college students were interested in this, willing to give up their time and help us with the research.
0: What stage are you at now?
6: So right now, the tribunal has launched. On November 12th, it launched its opening session. That went live We had uh, almost 1,800 people registered for that, which was uh, a wonderful audience across the globe. And the format of the tribunal is that we created the evidence to be delivered in the form of documentaries, video documentaries, that has images, movies, videos with voice narration providing the, uh, the evidence. And that is mailed out every week via email to everybody who registered and all the people who registered, are encouraged to then share that link with others. So that process will take four months and about in February we will have the jurors of the tribunal come together and render a verdict on the evidence. Are that you, will be live streamed.
0: Are you taking them on one by one or are they all putting them all together?
6: We're putting them all together because they all work with each other. It's very incestuous. So Lockheed Martin may be the prime contractor on one fighter aircraft, and Raytheon and Boeing will be subcontractors on that same aircraft providing parts. And then on the next weapon system, Raytheon will be the prime and, say, the others will be subcontractors. So they're all integrally involved here, and we didn't want to split them apart. So they're all captured in the war crimes and crimes against humanity. And we're focusing on specific areas of the globe where they've done this. So Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, the occupied territories of Palestine. These are the areas that we're concentrating on, where they have used their products to kill innocents and to do so knowingly.
0: And these are the areas where the United States government Decided that they were going to take over these countries or destroy them in this century.
6: Correct. These are countries that were identified by the United States military for military action in wars of choice, and they went in under cover of either terrorism, defending freedom or democracy, but in reality, most of the times, they were going in for to capture the markets, typically it was oil. In the case of Syria and Iraq, it's to capture the oil fields there. And that is what's so often happening. We're discovering in Somalia right now that there are offshore oil fields that the United States has now returned to Somalia because there's great interest in those oil fields. So the U.S. military is acting as a corporate police force for fossil fuel companies to extract resources from these these countries.
0: I did read the other day that they're also after oil fields off the coast of Gaza.
6: They are. And Israel has been described as one big floating United States battleship designed to protect and get oil out of the Middle, Middle East for us.
0: What are you learning through this process? I'm, I'm quite sure you knew a lot, but I'm sure, quite sure that there are things that you mightn't have known, but you know now.
6: Well, I've learned how the uh, corporations work hand in glove with the United States military to create needless wars and cause a lot of death and suffering. I did not know the extent of that military industrial complex until this tribunal. Uh, I also was able to learn what it's like to try, and I emphasize the word try, to view this through the eyes of the victims. And that was a goal of ours, was to try to tell this story through the eyes of the victims of these wars. So we've tried to interview victims themselves. We've tried to find stories of the victims and really understand what it's like to be on the receiving end of the United States war machine.
0: Can you tell some of the stories they've told?
6: They're heartbreaking stories of men, women and children who are villagers. Farmers uh, trying to create a living uh, and have a family only to have it destroyed. They see their family destroyed. They see their country fragmented and uh, exploited by the United States. They see the United States military forces coming in, not obeying any kind of rules of law or rules of war, but taking what they want and committing war crimes uh, as needed. So, when you see these, these women, children, these men who've, who've lost loved ones and they're being interviewed, you recognize that they are exactly like you, your siblings, your neighbor, anybody else who lives right close to you. They're just looking for a livelihood, a family, some security and safety that we in America too often take for granted but which comes at the expense of causing a lot of wars around the world.
0: Wondering if you've also interviewed health professionals and journalists who also seem to be a major target in these wars now.
6: We did. We interviewed Dr. Aisha Juman, who's an epidemiologist from Yemen, and she was able to go into detail as to what the war in Yemen has done to the population there. And not just war casualties, but the secondary casualties of these wars. For instance, what happens when the water and sanitation systems go out, when the food chain breaks down, when the transportation system breaks down? What happens to the people in terms of their health? So that was important for us to highlight as well. And in terms of uh, journalists, we were able to interview uh, Matt Akins and Jeffrey Stern. We were able to interview Norman Solomon and others who were able to tell us what it's like as a journalist in these war zones. They were there, they were they were in these areas, and to see the conflicts from that perspective. So um, have enormous respect for these individuals, whether they be doctors or whether they be journalists who are on the ground in these areas. Uh, That was something Kathy Kelly really brought to the tribunal because she, too, has been on the ground in both Afghanistan and Iraq during these bombardments and, and knows what it's like. And that's an experience that I don't think you can really get your arms around unless you are actually there.
0: You're also looking at the role of lobbying think tanks and revolving doors. Where do they feature?
6: So they're part of uh, the military industrial complex, which now has actually changed its name to the military industrial academic media complex. It gets bigger and bigger. So uh, media, news media, academia, think tanks are all part of this U.S. war industry. For instance, weapons makers will fund think tanks who produce white papers about particular areas of the world they will give those white papers to members of congress specifically members on the armed services committee who approve pentagon contracts demonstrating that this area of the world is a possible concern that the US, united states military may need weapon systems there and may need to go there so the narrative gets created through the think tanks to members of congress who then are approving contracts to the pentagon for these weapon systems Meanwhile, retired officials from the Pentagon, generals, end up serving as analysts on CNN and MSNBC and Fox or whatever one you want to pick. At the same time, they're sitting on the board of Raytheon or Lockheed Martin. So they go on these news shows. They promote a war narrative. They don't disclose that they're also on the board of directors of Raytheon, which is benefiting from this particular war. And so there's a whole loop here. And the revolving door is talking about uh, a general who retires, works at Raytheon like Lloyd Austin, comes out of retirement and becomes the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon, which he is right now, approving contracts for Raytheon. And then when he retires from the Pentagon, will go back to Raytheon and certainly be rewarded for his good efforts at approving contracts for them. So that is the revolving door, and that is this giant loop between the media, the Pentagon, think tanks, Academia is also funded heavily by weapons manufacturers. So our colleges and universities, which also produce the research that is part of the war narrative, they are funded by weapons manufacturers, and we've explored that.
0: You also must be concerned about the increasing amount of weapons and money going to the wars in Ukraine and what, uh, what Israel is doing to Palestine at the moment.
6: We are indeed. You know, wherever U.S. weapons go, especially when they're in such enormous quantities as Ukraine or Israel, many of those weapons go unaccounted for. They're lost to the black market. Um, Ukraine, they're estimating up to 30 percent of weapon shipments we've sent are unaccounted for. So those weapons are going to be there long after we're gone and they may end up in the wrong hands. So we're very concerned about that aspect of it. But the bigger aspect is that this is part of the war narrative, that weapons must go to Ukraine, for instance, and that continuing to have the Ukrainians fight for their self-defense and creating a narrative that they are somehow going to be able to push Russia out of Ukraine with just enough weapons, that is a narrative that benefits the war makers and it benefits the weapons makers, but it does not benefit the Ukrainians. Because everybody probably knew at the start of that war that it was going to be a stalemate at the least. And here we are two years later with a lot of casualties on both sides, still at a stalemate. And the only people who've benefited are U.S. weapons makers. And similarly in Israel, we have a a similar situation. We're flooding the Middle East with all these weapons. We don't know how many will go unaccounted for. But the more weapons you bring to bear, the more weapons increase on the other side. So war has never ended. War, violence never ends. Violence and more weapons certainly are not going to end weapons being used on the other side. It's just going to lead to far more casualties uh, of, of innocent people. I believe in Gaza they've said that there are more women and children killed in Gaza during this last siege them were killed in ukraine and the number of women and children killed in ukraine was astronomical
0: and of course that's the word isn't it's the last siege it's been going on for years and years and years
6: right it's always the last war it's always the last siege it's always as if we'll get it right this time we'll learn this time you know um
0: and it
6: and, and you never do it's like a you know, I, I read it as an analogy of somebody who smokes and has cancer and they know it's going to kill them, but they keep smoking. And then the doctor tells them they have to stop smoking, but they just, they just can, you know, and war is the same kind of thing that until people really learn that you're not going to end war with war, it's going to continue. And if we have weapons makers who are so powerful as they are in the United States, Weapons makers who are able to influence the media, influence members of Congress, have one of their board of directors be our current Secretary of Defense. Until that is addressed and confronted, we're going to continue to have needless war. So Our goal is to inform people with these facts, and we believe that there are a lot of fair-minded people out there. And once they are informed with these facts, it will motivate them to take action. So the goal is, the goal is to inform and to motivate
0: Well, you've had the first segment earlier in this month, November the 12th. This this sounds like a, a long project.
6: It is. As I said, it'll last approximately four months, but the goal was to try to deliver the information in accessible and digestible ways for the viewers because we watched other people's tribunals, and they typically would be spread out over a weekend, many hours, and they consisted of experts simply looking into the camera and talking. And while the information was very important and very valuable, it was not very compelling and it was not going to grab viewers who were not interested in that initially. So we don't want to just preach to the converted. We don't want to just have these videos watched by people who are already in agreement with us. Our goal was to create a method of delivery where we could get other people in to actually hear the message. So, 30-minute documentaries delivered to people each week that they can watch during their commute or wherever they may be at the coffee shop was something we felt that was appropriate. And if we spread it out over four months, we can give them 15 to 20 hours of evidence, have the same result in terms of the amount of evidence, but a lot of people are actually watching it who might not ordinarily have watched it.
0: And after that four months...
6: Then we reconvene the panel of our judges, our jurors. and They've been watching these videos all along, too. They render a verdict, and they provide a decision and a rationale for the decision, and that decision will then be published. And during the four months, we have periodic online meetings, and our first one is coming up December 3rd. So every three weeks we're meeting again with our registrants online to hear them talk about the evidence they've seen so far. Because we want the jury to be made up, not just of our judges, but of the public, the citizenry all over the world. We want people to watch this evidence and and we want to hear, well, what did you think of this week's evidence? And then we would like to be able to give them methods to take political action in their local community. What can we do locally? Because we hear that a lot. What can I do locally? And there's a lot that can be done locally. And so we want to give them that information. And so we're meeting every three weeks with the groups to do that.
0: Just quote Cornel West, Merchants of Death, War Crimes Tribunal member. We render you, corporations, obsessed with war profiteering, accountable, answerable. It's a big ask, but you're up to it.
6: We are indeed. And Cornel West was one of the first witnesses we interviewed. And as a theologian and a professor and a prophet, he provided the context that we were able to operate under, which is we want to hold you accountable for what you've done. And we want answers from you for what you've done. And so because of that, we delivered subpoenas to those four weapons manufacturers a year ago, demanding that they provide documentary evidence, either incriminating or exculpating them from the crimes. And when they failed to comply with those subpoenas, we returned 90 days later and delivered contempt citations. And all this was designed, it was designed to hold them accountable, answerable, provide us with the information. We invited them to participate in the tribunal, to sit as witnesses and they declined. But that idea of being accountable and answerable is something they have never been called to do before.
0: Well, finally, Brad, how do people get involved here in Australia?
6: Go to merchantsofdeath.org and register for the tribunal. It's free. You just put your email in. You will automatically start receiving all the video evidence that we are providing. And you can go back and review the video evidence that has already been presented. And you can then participate with us during our live meet-up sessions to discuss the evidence and be a part of this historic People's Tribunal.
0: Thanks so much. You betcha. Thank you so much. And Brad Wolfe has been talking about his work with the Merchants of Death, War Crimes Tribunal, which began this month.
4: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the
0: voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Now, to conclude the monthly Gene Ethics Network report with the Executive Director Bob Phelps. The topic remaining was what are they up to with Cavendish bananas? But first, I had to ask Bob, what are Cavendish bananas?
7: Well, that's the main banana that you can find in your supermarket. It's the long, long one as opposed to the lady fingers, the little small bananas. Really, virtually 100% of all commercial bananas in Australia are of the Cavendish variety. And one of the problems with Cavendish is that it is um, susceptible to a uh, soil-borne disease, a fungus called Fusarium wilt, which is also known as Panama disease. University of Queensland, or University of Technology in Queensland, should I say, has been working for about a decade I'm trying to genetically engineer bananas that would have resistance uh, to these pathogens in the soil. Both the Office of Gene Technology Regulator and Food Standards Australia New Zealand received applications uh, to commercialise these bananas a couple of months ago. The period of public comment has just ended. So, of course, we made submissions to the regulators about this. How it will go, it will be the same deal as before pretty much. The regulators have already indicated that they will approve both the growing of these banana bushes and uh, acceptance of the food into the Australian food supply. The difference between a whole food like a banana as far as the food supply is concerned, however, is that uh, whereas the stuff we were talking about before Uh, The proteins and so on that come in as a result of fermentation processes do not require labelling. These bananas would be labelled, provided the states and territories see that the law is implemented. And that will make a difference. I think empowering shoppers to actually make a decision about whether or not they're going to buy this fruit uh, is absolutely critical. And uh, and it's clear that many people uh, will decide to leave it on the shelf.
0: Just finally, Bob, the environment we live in now and have lived in for decades and decades now, the chemical environment, are there many people who are actually researching the health of the people of this world who have been subject to increasing numbers of chemicals in their food, in their water, in the air, every year?
7: Well, yes. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there is a fair bit of research and there's a lot of policy work going on to try to... uh, really phase out chemicals. I mean, it's the same chemicals. The petrochemical industry is at the back of the whole thing because uh, fossil fuels are the feedstock for many of these chemical processes. So they're being still patronised by our governments. But yeah, the chemical era has to finish. We see now the United Nations taking uh, the plastic pollution of the world's oceans seriously. We're starting to see a transition in agriculture away from uh, the high input industrial intensive farming systems that uh, have been used in the West, uh, uh, particularly since the Second World War. And yet most of the world's food is still, some 70% of the world's food is still produced by small scale farmers without huge amounts of chemical input. But the industry has been pushing African farmers, Latin American farmers and so on to get big or get out of the industry, aggregate their land, become dependent on these inputs. And we have to reverse that process. There's, of course, work being done by people who are advocating for regenerative and organic agriculture systems, which are not dependent on the inputs of of these uh, fossil fuel derived chemicals. Hopefully, those voices, together with our own, will make a difference. But it is a long, hard road to advocate for an end to industries which really have dominated the world now for the last 50 or 60 years. Somehow or another, people seem to be in denial about the public health impacts of these um, dreadful industries um, and also, of course, the environmental Impacts are largely hidden as well. Yes, we need more research, but we also need more policy implementation of what's already known about the destruction that uh, synthetic chemicals, genetic engineering, and a range of other technologies have on our health and environment.
0: And many thanks to Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. And one more report for 2023. Next month.
2: You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
0: While our focus, understandably, has been on Gaza and increasingly the West Bank recently, people in other countries are fighting repression and human rights abuses, and the Philippines is no exception. I spoke with Peter Murphy, the Chair of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, and we began with the abduction of two environmentalists back in September by the National Task Force to end local communist armed conflict, i.e. the Philippines police and military, and later released but continued to be red tagged, vilified and threatened with charges. Peter, take us back to before September the second. Who are these two environmentalists and and what brought them to the attention of the police?
4: There was a um, sort of a flagship project of Marcos Jr. for reclamation of land in Manila Bay in the Bataan area. That's a little bit to the west of Manila, you know, out towards the entrance of the bay. And it's a fairly famous place, um, Bataan. It's got an export processing zone. It's also got a, a nuclear power station that never started and it was a World War Two site as well. So and anyway, the, the, the uh, coastal community was really worried about the loss of its fishing and uh, uh, agricultural uh, uses of that area and um, these two young women were biology graduates from the university who were doing some data collection or, you know, investigation of the environmental and social impact of the reclamation project. So that's the background. And they they came to the attention of the security forces because they were doing that.
0: Were they the only ones who came to the attention or were others attacked as well?
4: So they were the only two who were abducted, arrested, you know, That, as far as I know. So, um, you know, it's because they were not um, locals and they were... You know, the sort of professional trained people having input into the criticism of the project. I think that's why they were targeted.
0: And what happened from then on?
4: They were abducted, uh, but there were some witnesses of the abduction. Uh, You know, it was a white panel van situation. I think it's familiar to a lot of people in a lot of countries. And then uh, there were, you know, immediate demands put on the police to release them because uh, the community and their environmental organisation immediately suspected that's what had happened. And the police uh, held media conferences denying that they had any, any knowledge of it, that they knew anything of it. When that video of the white van was, was shown, they denied that they had anything to do with them. And then a couple of weeks later, there's a media conference saying that they were um, in the in the detention of the security forces uh, and that um, they were some kind of subversives. And then the, the next thing was on, the, I think, the 19th of September, a media conference was held in a nearby town hall, which was like a sort of a parade, and, and the two young women were meant to confess that they were actually uh, members of the New People's Army who had decided to surrender and um, instead they stood up and said no, that they were abducted by the police and that they had been held in a military camp, they'd been threatened with death uh, if they didn't sign a confession, and that's why they signed it, and then they were you know, rejecting that, that they'd signed anything uh, freely at this uh, media conference. So it was a very big uh, embarrassment to the police and the army. The particular unit, uh, that was running this whole thing. It's called the uh, National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict, and it's a joint police army uh, structure. And it's it's already very notorious. It's been operating since twenty eighteen, uh, and you know it's been involved in a lot of what they call red tagging, which is uh, uh, denunciation of uh, civilian activists, and in the end, killing of quite a few. Civilian activists. So, um, yeah, that's that's the the basic story. And since then, you know, the the NTF, the acronym is NTF Alqaq, has uh, been denouncing these two young women and has uh, laid charges of perjury against them, so that they're sort of being now legally uh, hunted just to harass them and maybe continue to intimidate them wear them down and try to stop them being active. But so far, you know, these two have really um, persisted in their case and, um, you know, are not uh, caving into the pressure.
0: When did they let them go and why?
4: It was September 19. Well, it was was in public that uh, the police said that they had arrested them and the two young women were able to really obviously hold up the story that they were abducted. And um the only evidence against them were these signed confessions, which they repudiated, so there was really no basis for them to be in detention. so that's that's it you know if uh, if somehow or other the police had managed to put a few hand grenades into their bags or some bullets or a firearm somewhere, then they would have been arrested you know on those sort of charges, but that hadn't been the the way it was managed
0: how do they seem psychologically when people the people who are closest to them are they concerned about their health
4: yes everyone's concerned um, I've asked those questions but uh, the answer seemed to be that you know they were they were shaken you know by the experience that was like fourteen or fifteen days in detention when no one really knew where they were and um, on the other hand though you know they were they were very determined to uh, reject you know and fight back against what was done to them rather than to just disappear so yeah, i think that um, obviously they've got a lot of resilience i think their ages are just 20 and 21 and they just they just recently graduated one of them and the other is still a student yeah i think that uh, we're just sort of witnessing to very uh, strong young women who are pretty clear about the importance of the work they were doing and the fact that they've been uh, wronged by the government so, so they have got support and i think uh, that they let's hope that they can withstand whatever sort of pressures come to bear on them and of course all of this is happening in, in more or less in public now so there is a counter pressure on the government and on the police and the army to stop, you know, harassing, to stop persecuting these people or people like them.
0: Nevertheless, it's pretty unusual for two advocates like that to get out safely. A lot have died, a lot have disappeared, never heard from again.
4: Yes, that's right. That's right. There's there's a very um, well-known case of two women, very similar ages, Students from the University of the Philippines who were abducted in um, Central Luzon, just north of Manila, in about 2006, and, and they, their bodies have never been recovered. And it's well known that they were used as sex slaves in a military camp uh, for some time yeah, maybe one or two years. You know that that sort of knowledge is there as well in the whole society, and, and certainly in the activist circles. So I'm sure they were quite. Frightened, you know, what, what could have happened to them while they were in that camp.
0: Well, the organisation of which you are chair, the Human Rights Organisation for the Philippines, they've called on the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to take action. Why did you take that stand at this time?
4: Well, the uh, the basic reason is that the judiciary in the Philippines is mostly incapable of addressing really big outrages like this and uh, we've been doing this now for years because under Duterte from 2016 this was the pattern so we have to call on international bodies to try to pressure the the Philippine government to you know respect the law um, because the internal processes of the Philippines uh, fail on this count so it's the uh, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights is the, is the principal global figure whose uh, job it is to uphold the, the laws uh, and uh, to call to account those uh, member states who have signed the, the relevant conventions on human rights uh, which are being um, broken or violated and uh, another body is the International Criminal Court. So we are are often writing to them as well. But in this case, uh, it's more appropriate, especially once they were released, that uh, it's the UN body that should be speaking out. And we recently had a uh, special rapporteur from the UN Human Rights Council visit the Philippines. And I, I don't know for sure, but I expect that he was able to interview those two young women and, um, and hear for himself what happened. Uh, and he issued a call on the 15th of November, so just a couple of weeks ago, for the abolition of this NTFL CAC. This is a call that's it's getting louder and louder in the international community. But, of course, so far, the Marcos uh, presidency and the Duterte vice presidency are uh, turning a deaf ear to that.
0: It's pretty unusual for human rights activists to be allowed into
4: the Philippines yeah, I think this is a an encouraging sign. Uh, Marcos Jr seems to be um, trying to demonstrate to the international community that he's not duterte you know version 2.0 that he's different and he's uh, agreed to this uh, special rapporteur. his name was Ian Fry. To, to visit recently, and uh, in January this year, so quite a you know since eleven months ago almost. He also had agreed that the International Labour Organisation could send a high-level mission to investigate allegations of uh, killings of trade union leaders that would never have happened under Duterte either. So we've got a bit of a uh, opening, but so far. You know, Marcos Jr. has absolutely not implemented the recommendation from the ILO mission. You know, we don't expect there'll be any uh, implementation of what Ian Fry has recommended. So it's it's, it's a real uh, grinding sort of struggle, but it's very important that, you know, international figures of standing continue to, to call out the Philippine government for these really, really egregious violations of human rights.
0: And he was pretty aggressive too, wasn't he, in his recommendations?
4: No, well, I think that they're clear and, and sort of blunt. Uh, can't sort of be nuanced or you know confused about what he was asking for. But they're not. It's not controversial to ask that human rights be respected. The controversy is when human rights are violated. You know, the idea that investigating the environmental and social impact of a project is some kind of threat to national security you know is absurd and uh, it's it's really extreme that this kind of uh, action takes place you know abducting people threatening them with death unless they sign false statements is really extreme you know you, the listeners should realize that, you know, we live in the region of uh, the Pacific and Southeast Asia and Asia. There's a lot of authoritarian regimes, but even in that whole context, the Philippines stands out as extreme, really head and shoulders, if you're going to call it that, above the rest for the level of violations which are taking place. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, what's shocking to me is that the international community is so muted in its response to the situation.
0: Well, it's not only activists who end up in jail or disappeared, it's actually senators. Tell us about Leila De Lima, her situation.
4: Yeah, so Senator De Lima, um, she, in my memory, uh, I first became aware of her when she was the Commissioner for Human Rights during the Arroyo Presidency which was really from two thousand and one through to two thousand and ten. That was also a period, like Duterte, of extreme violence against civilians. A huge number of people disappeared, about a thousand, and um, another, you know, seven or eight hundred were killed. Uh, and Lila de Lima was a very uh, reliable, steady uh, voice against all of those crimes coming from the government. And She always stood on the side of the communities and the families of those who were the victims. She always tried to investigate independently and put out a report. So that was a really uh, honourable role she played in that. And Then she um, became a, a senator and um, just towards the end of that period of her uh, being the Commissioner for Human Rights, she also investigated uh, the reports of uh, Rodrigo Duterte's uh, death squads or drug killings in uh, Davao City where he was the mayor this this definitely uh, attracted his ire and um, he, he was sort of uh, attacking her even back then in 2010, 11, 12 as a senator in 2016 she uh, had already set up a Senate committee to investigate the Davao City uh, killings And then she started to speak out against the nationwide uh, so-called drug war killings, which were massive from 2016. And um, by the, I think it was the end of 2016, the um, Senate uh, stripped her of any roles in the Senate. There was a very pro-Duterte Senate and and House of Representatives. And uh, and then there was uh, a series of people came forward to, to claim that she was, Uh, a corrupt politician who had taken bribes from the drug industry in a a role she had of supervising the prisons. And um, she was arrested, put on trial and sentenced. And uh, she was still in jail until just, uh, I think, two weeks ago. So that was almost six years in jail. And in that time, all of the witnesses who who had initially put statements out against her had retracted their statements saying that they were forced to to make them, either that they would be in jail themselves or members of their family would be killed if they didn't sign. So there's no real case against Senator DeLima at all. But she's only out on bail and she's technically got one more alleged uh, drug uh, money case to to answer. And uh, I, hope, I hope that that's quashed or withdrawn as soon as possible. That would be our call. So Senator DeLima, you would have to say, is the most high-profile political prisoner uh, in the Philippines. And she's been treated really badly. And this is, um, despite many, many politicians from around the world visiting her in jail and obviously saying to... The President Duterte and, and now Marcos, that she should never be there. The fact that she was released on bail, when she got out, she, she thanked President Marcos Jr. for his support. So I would say that, again, he, he played some kind of role. And that's also not correct. The judiciary uh, shouldn't be interfered with. Uh, by executive uh, government in in the democratic systems, but um, you, you can see how it works in the Philippines. So she's in jail because of a president, and she's now out of jail because of another president. It's it's really really uh, deplorable, and um, all of the all of the calls over these last six years for her to be uh, released from detention, you know, have been vindicated, but far too late.
0: Well, publishers and journalists haven't fared
4: too well either, have they? No, it's uh, it's a never-ending uh, persecution, again, of high-profile uh, media people uh, who criticise the Duterte government. I think that's the key point to make. Unfortunately, journalists, uh, journalists' role in the Philippines is is a very dangerous one, and a lot of journalists have been killed. I think it must be the worst or second worst country in the world for killing of journalists. And um, you know the worst now would be uh, Gaza, Palestine, and before that it was Iraq. And uh, even while I was in Bangkok at the Human Rights Conference, uh, another journalist was killed. It was a radio journalist, and uh, the killer just walked into his studio while he was live on air and shot him these nearly all of these uh, journalist killings in the philippines are more understood at the local level that that a local uh, media process is exposing some kind of uh, illegal activity of a of a powerful figure in the community who then just pays somebody to kill them and you know again virtually no one's arrested i'm not really aware of anyone being arrested for killing journalists in the philippines Except eventually, in the in the very notorious case of um, two thousand and nine, in Mindanao, yeah, I think um, journalism and you know other categories of of uh, people in the Philippines are very vulnerable to uh, uh, political killing.
0: Also, human rights lawyers.
4: Yes, I would say the next category would be lawyers taken broadly all all lawyers are human rights activists because they're upholding the rights of people under the law and uh, if you're killed because you're doing your job it's an outrageous crime against the the human rights law as as well as the rights of that individual to life and freedom so it's um uh, a lot of lawyers were killed in the duterte period because they defended uh people accused of drug crimes by the middle of that presidency virtually no one wanted to take a drug case because it was just too dangerous and then it's you know you've referred to the human rights lawyers so those who take up the cases of farmer leaders or trade union leaders or church workers or uh, indigenous people who are under some kind of threat they have also been targeted and uh, Either been killed or attempted attempted murders on them. The legal profession is also a very dangerous one, especially where it blends into the political uh, side of things. Anyone virtually who who uses language of uh, speaking for the poor, talking about human rights, that alone will get the NTFL to denouncing you as a communist terrorist a supporter or a member of uh, the New People's Army. And, of course, that's a signal that you know, you're on a hit list. So, yeah, it's, it's a really scary place.
0: Is it even worse in Mindanao?
4: I think, uh, you know, Mindanao is bad, bad, but uh, you sort of got to take a bigger collective approach to understand why. So in Mindanao, there more than half of the philippines army is deployed there so not only do you have the case of you know like the two young women people being uh, abducted people being forced to quote-unquote surrender uh, people being denounced on placards and uh, banners and uh, on social media and then being assassinated Uh, but you have um in a sort of major uh, military operations, which strike at uh, ordinary communities of uh, farmers or indigenous people, and uh, civilians become the target of aerial bombardment, artillery barrages, or you know a sweep of uh, soldiers who machine gun everybody in the in their path. Um, so you you know you get to very dangerous situations, and and lots of casualties so in that sense you know it's um an abuse of uh, a violation of human rights but on a bigger collective basis not the single one or two people being targeted at a time
0: meanwhile peter you attended a gathering in bangkok thailand many areas of concerns for people there
4: well we we had to hold the conference in thailand because we can't hold it in the philippines so, uh, yes, that's, that in itself is a, is a sign of the times. And um, we were holding a, a conference to discuss the The title was The Peace We Want, um, but it was to try to understand the counterinsurgency policy, which underlies all of these violations of human rights, which uh, I've been talking with you about this morning, the yeah, you know, the inputs were really high level and uh, we had about 120 people, mainly from North America, Europe, Australia, and uh, a few countries in Asia. And of course, some Filipino people were able to come as uh, input people and so on. You know, we learned a lot and uh, tried to reorient uh, our international coalition for the next three years. So... Every three or four years we we have to hold an assembly and elect a council and uh, offices and so on. So we, we did that quite successfully. Uh, I was very relieved because it's uh, the first time we've actually had to organise our assembly outside of the Philippines where there is a lot more support for us and finance it and, and we, we were able to you know mobilise funds from mainly North America uh, in Europe, but also trade unions in Australia were very generous in their support. So, uh, yeah, I feel really good about it. We've figured out, um, based on the, the very high tempo of work we had to do during Duterte's presidency, how can we be more systematic in our, um, especially our communications strategy, and also in our targeting of uh, national governments and the UN bodies in particular, to uh, increase their attentiveness and then their their pressure on the Philippine governments to really change back to uh, what we would all consider a more normal rule of law.
0: And I would imagine that a number of the people who attended were blacklisted from going to the Philippines. Is that right?
4: That's why we had to have the meeting in Bangkok
0: how many people um, altogether do you believe?
4: Uh, are blacklisted that were at the meeting. Mm. Uh, I think about seven or eight of the key people in the coalition there uh, uh, couldn't visit the Philippines. we would just be turned away at the airport.
0: And what sort of work on what country do they come from?
4: Australia, Canada, and the United States.
0: And that's a lifelong ban until you get rid of these dictators I suppose.
4: Until there's some kind of uh, change of mood there. (laughs) You know it's not really legal that these sort of things are done. Uh, No one's ever you know from the Philippine government ever said to me oh you should change your behavior you know we don't like you doing this or that because what they're asking you to do in a way is is just, just stop being a normal person, you know, (laughs) they can't really, they won't really show their hand like that. So it just, just goes on and on until, until somebody says, oh, when we're not going to block these people anymore. You know, if they come to the Philippines, we will just keep them under surveillance, watch everyone they talk to, things like that. That's actually what they've been doing ever since I very, for my very first visit to the Philippines, which was way back in 1989. So, You know, I was able to visit for 20 years um, without any problem, Um, but Duterte became, you know, in his presidency, he was virtually allergic to any criticism internally or internationally, and he he always lashed out personally against anyone who did criticise him. So he's, he's not the president anymore. His daughter is there as the vice president, and maybe Marcos... Junior is going to relax this stuff. Um, I think we'll test it out, um, in 2024. There's no need to be playing cat and mouse all the time. But, um, yeah, I, I just hope it does end and, uh, we can have at least, uh, personal contacts again. I very much uh, miss seeing the people I, I've got to know over these decades and, um, and they, of course, uh, would love to have, Activists like me come back and uh, share share with them what's happening.
0: Well, oh, just finally, Peter, I'd imagine that there would be some discussion at that conference about the plight of the people in Palestine, both in with the West Bank and Gaza.
4: Yes, well, it was in front of mind. Uh, you know, the, um, the massive bombardment of Gaza was, was taking place all the time while we were in in Bangkok and the images, of course, are flowing to us like everyone else in the world. Yes, uh, it's impossible you know, to hold a meeting about human rights anywhere in the world today and not uh, immediately reflect and comment on what's really happening um, in Gaza, which is a sort of mass murder perpetrated by a state. Yeah, there was a lot of feeling and resolutions passed to show support for the people of Palestine, and to calling for the upholding of everybody's human rights.
0: Okay, well, glad you're home safe and sound.
4: That's good. Yeah, I'm glad to be. <laughs> I'm glad we uh we were able to hold that conference successfully, Jan, and uh I know it will mean uh, a more effective campaign for human rights in the Philippines in the next uh, couple of years, and I hope that um some of your listeners can can be engaged in it um, if we do our work well.
0: And I'm sure they always do their work well. That's Peter Murphy, the Chair of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.